Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 28. Ezekiel 1, 1 through 28. It says, In the 30th year of the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kebar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kebar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually. And in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had human likenesses, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze under their wings. On their four sides they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out, out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while the two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning." Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the, gle like the gleaming of beryl, and the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being as it were a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went, and their rims were tall and awesome, and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went, and the wheels rose along with them. For the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went. And when those stood, these stood. And when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them. For the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Over the heads of the living creatures there was a likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads and under the expanse their wings were stretched out straight one toward another and each creature had two wings covering its body and when they went i heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters like the sound of the almighty a sound of tumult like the sound of an army when they stood still they lit down their wings and there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads and when they stood still they lit down their wings and above the expanse over their heads there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist I saw as it were gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist I saw as it were the appearance of fire and there was brightness around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. 
Now, we are not going to have time tonight to cover all of this, but I needed to read all of this to lay the foundation for where we're going to go tonight as we begin to break down this next section of Scripture. But we weren't done last week with verses 1, 2, and 3 because there's a couple other things I want to bring out of verses 1, 2, and 3 real quickly before we move on to this vision that Ezekiel has there at the Kebar Canal of the four living creatures and God Himself on His throne above them. Go back and notice how the focus changes in the verse 3 verses from Ezekiel to the hand of the Lord. And this says, In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kebar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. So the context here is, is Ezekiel telling you who, where he was and what he saw. But look at what happens. And it says, On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kebar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Isn't that a noticeable change in, in the way that they're describing? Here he starts off by saying, I was here and I saw, and then it quickly jumps to the hand of the Lord was on him. And I think this is a very important thing for us to grasp, and I want to take a few minutes just to kind of go down this road. Beware of the preachers who put the focus on themselves instead of God. Ezekiel said, here's who I am, here's where I was, and this is what I saw, and then immediately, poof, we're redirected to the fact that this is actually about God, not about Ezekiel. In 1 Corinthians, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. See, because we not only have a problem nowadays of preachers who will put the focus on themselves, we also have a problem in the fact that there are people in the pew who would love to put the focus on them for too many reasons that I don't have time to get into. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes to the Corinthian church and says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. As, we, as you probably know, in our churches today, we hear too much of, well, I like brother so-and-so's preaching better than brother so-and-so. I actually, I have a picture on a wall over here in the back foyer here of all the, what I call the hall of shame, of all the former pastors of this church. And unfortunately, people will go and say, good one, bad one, good one, bad one. And you can put me in whatever group you want. But that's a wrong thing. When you're putting your eyes on the preacher instead of the one who called the preacher, you've got a problem in your church. We need to understand that the purpose of people like myself who've been called by God to preach and teach the Word is that we would just be instruments of God and that we would have our eyes back on God. Oh, sometimes we lose sight of that, but I love how the passage in Ezekiel went from Ezekiel saying, I saw to this is about God. This is about God. Go to John chapter 3 real quick. In John chapter 3, verses 25 through 30. John the Baptist had a pretty good following for a while, didn't he? 
But look what happens in verses 25 through 30. It says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and the Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him, talking about Jesus. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who, is the, who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. As amazing as John was in the ministry that God called him to, as so many people were coming from everywhere to hear him preach, and even though Jesus said, of men born of women, none has risen greater than John the Baptist, how did John the Baptist's life end? He was put in prison for preaching the truth, and he was beheaded because a king made a stupid vow to a young girl who didn't know what to do. She asked her mom. The mom said, ask for John's head, and he was put to death. I mean, wow, that's kind of an inglorious way to go out. But John the Baptist also understood my role was to prepare the way for him. Now that he's here, I'm done. I've done what he's asked me to do. And we need to understand, some of us in ministry, are all, all of us in ministry are called to different roles. Some are planters, some are waterers, some are harvesters. Not all are the same. He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. But I want you to beware of those who make their ministry about themselves. Beware of those who want you to follow them. And be careful yourself about judging your pastor because you don't think he's as good as somebody else. You've taken your eyes off of God and you put them back on man. You take your eyes and put them back on, on God and let Him take care of the ones He's chosen to be used of Him to preach and to teach. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I'll share with you one last thing and th about this and we'll move on. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, look at verses 1 through 4. Paul said, When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. By the way, some of these pretty fancy and uh, famous preachers who are pretty impressive in man's eyes, have they fallen a few times? Understatement? And how many people have been disillusioned and crushed because, wow, I can't believe that person fell? Well, you're looking at the wrong thing. I want to encourage you, as we do this study, and you're going to see it, Yes, God uses Ezekiel. Yes, his call is in on Ezekiel. And just like the other prophets, he planned a role for him. But it's not about Ezekiel. It's about God. And that will help you in whatever situation you're dealing with in your church, especially if it's tied to some issues with the pastor. Keep your eyes on God, and you watch what God does. Actually, a large part of God's preparing his prophets for their roles is to remind them of their weakness. Isn't that what Paul just said here? He said, I didn't come to be impressive. 
I just came in humility and weakness. I just want you to see the power of God. I didn't want you to be impressed with me. And actually, that's one of the things that they used to accuse Paul of. They'd say, he's pretty powerful in his letters, but when he shows up, he's not that impressive. Go back to Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to do a real quick study with you on how God prepares the ones he calls to lead. Exodus chapter 3, look at verses 1 through 12. As Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the peace priest of Midian, and, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness to, and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, don't come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, but I'll be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. Now, if you even know the rest of the story, Moses doesn't go from here and say, okay, I'll do it. He still says, can't. Why don't you said my brother? He talks better than me. And actually, as you'll notice, and I'm going to show you a couple others real quickly, God actually picks the ones who aren't impressive. Oh, by the way, that means he can pick from anybody in the world because there's nobody impressive. Oh, there might be some that are impressive to us, but the eyes of the Lord know everyone, don't they? And God sees everyone for who they really are. And let me tell you, there's nobody impressive. There's only one who's good. And that's God. But in order for God to use us, we need to stop thinking we need to be more and realize we need to acknowledge how less we are. Do you understand what I'm saying? How many of us have fallen to the lie of the enemy when we just think about being used ourselves for anything? Of There could always be somebody that's better at it. You ever had that thought go through your head? There's got to be someone that's better at it than me, thinking that the power is in the person. So you're saying that God's not powerful enough to do it through you. He needs somebody has, who has more, you see what I'm saying? Who has more ability. God couldn't use me because I'm, I'm nothing, but that person's got some ability. God could use them. So in other words, God's weak. He needs a little bit of man's help. Exactly. Go to Isaiah chapter 6. Look at verses 1 through 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. With two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell amongst the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, don't understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Now here again we see Isaiah's call. And God says, I got a plan for you, Isaiah. And he has a vision where he sees God on his throne. And what is Isaiah's first reaction? I can't do it. I'm not worthy. Good. Now you're being ready to be used. He doesn't say, here am I, send me. Until he had said, woe is me. See, too many of us. That's one of the neat things that happened to me when I was early in the ministry. I was a young preacher boy. I'd been youth pastor at this church and youth pastor at, at Lockmar for a couple of summers and went off to seminary in New Orleans. And my first Sunday of being in New Orleans at the seminary, I found a church there by the airport at Williams Boulevard Baptist Church in Kenner. And at the evening service, I went to the senior pastor and I walked right up to him. And this is a big church that had seven pastors on staff already. And I went up to him and I said, I'm a brand new seminary student here in New Orleans and God's called me to preach and I wanna, I wanna get some experience. I've been a youth pastor for three summers, but I... I'd like a job here. He said, show up tomorrow morning at 9 and I'll give you a job. I was like, wow. I was all excited because there's no classes on Mondays in seminary. And so uh, I came with my Bible under my arm ready to go to work. And he said, uh, see those portable buildings out there? I need you to tear them down. We need to tear them down because we're growing and we need to add some more buildings. I need you to tear those portable buildings down. Little did I know he was testing me. He had had a lot of young preacher boys say, I'm ready to go serve. He wanted to know if I was willing to roll up my sleeves and get dirty and be humbled. I needed the money. So I said yes. And after two and a half months of afternoons and weekends tearing those buildings down piece by piece, he then gave me a Sunday school class and then brought me on as an associate and then in time gave me more responsibilities as I worked my way up. Have you all ever noticed, by the way, that young people today assume that as soon as they graduate high school or get out of college, they're going to move into a house the same size their parents got when they were 50? Have you ever noticed that about the attitude of people today? They just assume. They, they don't realize. Those of us, my wife and I, when we were first married, made less than $6,000 our first year of marriage. We were living in a trailer that was 12 feet wide, 62 feet long. People have no idea. But kids today assume they're just going to go right into a house like mom and dad are in now. Oh, by the way, that same attitude is now affecting the church. Young preacher boys are coming straight out of seminary, if even that, and thinking they're just going to pastor a big, growing, booming place. God takes his men that he calls through a breaking process, a humbling, before he can use them. Jeremiah, go to Jeremiah chapter 1.
Look at verses 4 through 19. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you and appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Don't say I'm only a youth. For to all whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. And don't be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put his hand, out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build up and to plant. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. And then the Lord said to me, you've seen well, for I'm watching over my word to perform it. And the word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And he said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Don't miss that. That's important. A boiling pot facing away from the north. And then the Lord said to me, Out of the north disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling the tra- all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come and everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem and against all its walls and all around and against the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil and forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. But you, dress yourself for work, Arise and say to them everything that I command you. Don't be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. Again, God calls Jeremiah, and Jeremiah's reaction is, I can't! Good answer! The problem is, is some of us say, I can't, and stay there. If you think you can, you've got a problem. But if you think you can't, and then still don't submit to what God's asked you to do, you've forgotten how powerful God is. But I love, and we'll get to more of Jeremiah's prophecy in a little bit, the fact that God, in each situation... By the way, what was Gideon's reaction when God said, i got a plan to use you? Gideon, did he say, hey, I'm able. Hey, hey, sign me up, I'm ready. No, he didn't say that either. We're not going to take the time because of how much I want to get covered tonight. But Paul, in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, you'll see the same thing. Paul actually, he had to be humbled, didn't he? When God called him, blinded him, and he couldn't even see for three days. And not only that, even though God humbled him at the beginning, throughout his ministry, even though God had taken him to see the third heaven and see paradise and things he couldn't talk about, God gave him a thorn in his flesh that he begged God to remove. And God's answer was, I'm going to leave it there. Why? To keep you humble. All this comes from Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, where it starts off, I, and quickly goes to God. We all have a tendency at times to rely on the flesh and put confidence in the flesh. And guess what God's going to do in those times? He'll humble us. Matthew chapter 23, verse 12 says this, Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. By the way, don't miss this. Matthew 23, 12. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. I don't want you to miss this. You're going to be humbled either way. There's no way around being humbled. 
You either humble yourself and acknowledge your dependence on God, or God will remind you and put you in a humbling process. You're going to be humbled. I found that when I humble myself, it's way better than when he humbles me. A little less painful. In verse 4, though, go back to Ezekiel 1. In verse 4, we see that Ezekiel sees a storming wind coming from where? The north. See, remember Jeremiah was told that he saw this boiling pot coming from the north, and God explained that this judgment was coming, and the nations were going to come from the north to attack Israel? And the same thing, now exile sees, I mean, Ezekiel sees a very similar thing. And I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and the flashing forth continually in the midst of the fire that were gleaming metal and so on. As we're going to see in this study, Ezekiel is to speak to the exiles in Babylon about the coming judgment on Jerusalem from the north, from Babylon. And coming out of the north, he saw a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually. Now, I want to talk to you about this cloud, because I'm going to show you from the Scriptures, we see this cloud a lot in many different forms. But this cloud, I believe that he sees, is the Shekinah glory of God. And I'm going to lay that out for you scripturally. The Shekinah glory of God many times was described as resembling a cloud. Go with me back to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24. Look at verses 12 through 18. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you, and behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Don't even get me started on the fact that, isn't that sad? That here Moses is about to go meet with God and he has to make sure that there's someone to handle all the complaining while he's gone. I've been a pastor for too long and those passages just jump off at me. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This cloud that came down on this mountain wasn't just a cloud. I mean, we've all seen clouds come down on a mountain. That's one thing I like about going to other parts of the country where the elevations are a little higher. Boy, when you hear a thunderstorm and you're actually in the mountains, then it feel like it's right there because you're closer to the clouds. This is not that type of a cloud. This is actually the glory of God in the form of a cloud. But as you could see, what did it look like to the people down on the ground? We read it. As what? What did it say there? It looked like what? Look at verse 17. It had the appearance of fire. It wasn't just a cloud, but it was... It was Glowing. It was scary. Go to Numbers chapter 9. Numbers chapter 9, verses 15 through 23. Numbers chapter 9, verse 15. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle the tent of the testimony, and that evening it was over the tabernacle. Like the appearance of what? Fired again till morning. 
So it was always, the cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And then it goes on and says, whenever the cloud lifted, they moved. And if it stayed, they stayed. But we don't need to keep reading. But I want you to understand, this same glory, this same cloud that was glowing and had the appearance of fire that came down on that mountain that Moses went up to in the presence of God, that same cloud now, when they built the tabernacle, it came down on the tabernacle. And as you know, it... At night, it looked like fire, and in the morning, it looked like a cloud, but it was a different than a, just a white, puffy cloud. It was a, there was a glory to it. There was a glow to it. Oh, we see this cloud again in the New Testament. Does anybody know where we see this cloud again in the New Testament? Not in Revelation, although we will see a little bit something of it in Revelation, but it's not mentioned as a cloud. Mana transfiguration, good for you. Matthew 17, go to Matthew 17. You have no idea how much it excites me as a preacher and teacher to hear people know the answer to a tricky Bible question. I love it. Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and his brother, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him, And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Still want to worship man, don't we? He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Here, right before the cross, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up onto this mountain, and he let his glory shine through. Remember, he was man and God. But watch out for the people that say that Jesus was never God. There ain't a man that can do this. And his clothes just became white as the light. And when that was happening, Moses and Elijah appeared and they were talking with Jesus. One of the gospel accounts tells us they were talking with him about what, what must soon take place in Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden, this cloud comes down. God himself, in the form of his glory, came down and began to speak to him. But what's different about the cloud we see in Ezekiel? Anybody know what's different about the cloud that we see in Ezekiel? It'll, it's similar to what we saw back in Exodus when God brought, gave the law and he told everybody else, don't touch the mountain. What's different about the cloud in Ezekiel? Does it look friendly? Doesn't look friendly, does it? Go back to verse four. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually and in the midst of fire. Then he goes on to describe more. But this cloud coming from the north, there was a stormy wind and there was fire flashing from it continually. In Exodus chapter 19, go back to Exodus 19. Let me show you what we're looking at here. Exodus 19. Look at verses 7 through 9 and then verse 16. Exodus 19, starting in verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud 
that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Jump down to verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. All the people in the camp trembled. When that cloud came down and God spoke to Moses, the people were afraid. And rightly so. He's holy. By the way, we see this, and Jeremy, you brought this out a little bit. Go with me to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, looking at verses 1 through 8. Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, John is told, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice that I saw, or I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came what? Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And then it talks about the seven torches, which is the spirits of God and the sea of crystal. And then we look and see at the end of verse 6, and around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, third like a, the face of a man, fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the fourth living, four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This holy, holy, holy God is bringing judgment from the north, using Babylon against unholy Judah. That's the message that Ezekiel has been given to give to the exiles. Jeremiah has been telling them for a while before. There's been people being taken captive. The ultimate destruction of Jerusalem hasn't happened yet. Remember, Ezekiel is writing this in 593 BC, sorry, AD, and, and he's writing it and he's saying, Look, I saw a vision from God, and the hand of the Lord was on me. And I'm about to tell you about all this amazing stuff that I saw. But the first thing I noticed was that it was a stormy wind and a cloud that came. And out of that cloud came peals of thunder and flashes of lightning and fire continually coming. And whenever we see God in His glory in that manner, it's showing His holiness and His judgment against sin. Oh, God is a God of love. But the only way He can exhibit or express His love to mankind is to also deal with man's sin. That's what the cross is all about, folks. The cross allows God to be God. See, God can't give His love to mankind unless their sin has been dealt with. He loves them in their sinful condition, but until they're holy enough for Him to be able to embrace them, He can't. So what was His plan? He Himself would go down take on human form, live just as a man, tempted in every way, yet without sin. And then his full wrath was poured out on himself, on his own son. And now, all who believe by faith that what Jesus did will give them righteousness and receive that by faith, God has poured out his wrath on sin and now he can express his love to mankind. Oh, but those, he loves the world that's lost. 
But if they don't ever receive this forgiveness, they don't ever receive this righteousness, they have to stay separated and they're going to have to experience that wrath for themselves. As we see in Revelation, though, in our study of Revelation, we saw earlier as well, John sees the same four living creatures that Ezekiel had seen. See, many of us have done the study of Revelation first and now we're doing Ezekiel and we think that, oh, Ezekiel saw the same thing John saw. No, 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 keep it in order. John saw the four living creatures which Ezekiel had already seen. I cannot emphasize this enough. Every time as I travel around and talk to Christians around this country and they say, well, I don't, I don't read Revelation. I don't understand it. It's confusing. It's just all the imagery is just crazy. And all I sit to my, say to myself under my breath is, you've never read your Old Testament. Because if you had read the Old Testament and then you had read Revelation, it would all made sense because everything that's there, we'd already seen in the Old Testament. All Revelation does is compile it. And so Ezekiel has seen these four living creatures. It's John's, in John's revelation, they appeared with God on his throne when? At a time of what? Anybody have an idea? What's coming from the throne? What's coming from this cloud? Lightning. Flashes of lightning. It's the time of judgment. Remember? He's taken up in the rapture. Come up here. It's the end of the church age. I'm going to show you what's going to take place after this. When Jesus begins to open the seals, what happens on the earth? The judgment period, the time of Jacob's trouble, when he's going to not only purify Israel and judge them for their sins, he's also going to be judging the nations. That time of judgment that's coming to the whole world is about to begin when John sees it in Revelation chapter 4. Ezekiel has given a message that he sees the coming judgment of God against Judah. And it's the stormy wind from the north. Here it comes. And it's God and his holiness. Now, John's account seems to read like they have four separate faces, if you read it here. But Ezekiel gives us a little more detail. In Ezekiel's account, we see that the four living creatures each have four faces. On the right side of their face is a lion. The left side of their face is an ox. The front is a human, and the back is an eagle. John just said he described the human, the eagle, the ox, and the, and, and the lion. But actually, Ezekiel shows us they have four faces. The right side is what, according to the scripture? The lion. Left side is ox. The front is human man and the back is an eagle folks these four living creatures are cherubim you say well how do you know this jim well the bible tells us jump to ezekiel chapter 10 i'm going to read to you something in ezekiel 10 we'll be studying it later on in our study so i won't stay there too long but listen to ezekiel 10 1 through 22 Ezekiel writes in chapter 10, Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like sapphire, in appearance like a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim, fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went in before my eyes, and now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house. When the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court, and the glory of the Lord went up from the cherubim to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. And when he commanded the man clothed in linen, take fire, sorry, and when he commanded the man clothed in linen, take fire from between the whirling wheels and from between the cherubim, he went in and stood beside a wheel, and a cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire that was between the cherubim, and he took some of it and put it it into the hands of the man clothed in linen, who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a human hand under their wings. And I looked, and behold, there were four wheels beside the cherubim, one beside each cherub. 
and the, chair, and the appearance of the wheels was like sparkling barrel. And as for their appearance, the four had the same likeness as if it were a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of four directions without turning as they went. But whatever direction in the front wheel faced, sorry, direction the front wheel faced, the others followed without turning as they went. And their whole body, their rims and their spokes, their wings and their wheels were full of eyes all around. The wheels that the four of them had, as for the wheels, they were called in my hearing the whirling wheels. And every one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub, which, by the way, also could be an ox in the translation of the Hebrew. And the second, the face of a human face. The third, the face of a lion. The fourth, the face of an eagle. And the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Kebar Canal. So here we see that these are the exact same ones. They're called cherubim. And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings, the mount up from the earth, the wheels did not turn from beside them. And when they stood still, these, these stood still. And when they mounted up, these mounted up with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in them, or in the wheels. For then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the th house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord. And the glory of the Lord God of Israel was over them. These were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Kebar Canal. And I knew that they were cherubim. Each of them had four faces, each had four wings, and underneath their wings the likeness of human hands. And as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces of whose appearance I had seen at the Kebar Canal. Each of them went straight forward. Now I read all of this for a reason, because in our closing tonight, I got something I can't wait to show you. But I want you to understand, these four living creatures that John saw in Revelation around the throne of God, and Ezekiel sees around the throne of God as he comes in judgment, are, these four living creatures are cherubim. Now, these living creatures also are called guarding or protecting angels. Guardian angels, protecting angels. Uh, we don't have the time tonight to go there, but if you go back to Genesis chapter 23, verses 22 through 24, when Adam and Eve sinned and ate from the tree they weren't supposed to eat from, God put something between them and the tree of life to guard them and keep them from getting to the tree of life. Does anybody know what he put there? The cherubim. He put a cherubim with a flaming sword. By the way, you weren't getting by him. Oh, by the way, do you also know that on the, the veil, the curtain between the holy place and the most holy place, does anybody know what was woven into that curtain according to God's design? Cherubim, guarding the presence of God. A cherubim is an angel. Most angels all have wings, but a cherubim is an angel. But we, every time we see angels, they appear to have wings that we know of. Of course, sometimes they take on human form and we don't know, but... Uh, so far, most angels we see have wings, yes. But there's all different kinds. There's seraphim and cherubim. And by the way, we'll get into all that in the weeks to come. Does anybody know that Satan was a cherubim? Go with me to Ezekiel 28. You're in chapter 10. Just jump over to 28. A lot of people may not realize this, but Satan used to be one of the cherubim. Ezekiel 28, look at verses 11 through 17. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings, 
and your engravings on the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. You walked. We've just seen those stones of fire among the cherubim in chapter 10. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You, you're corrupted, you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. We'll get into that in more detail when we get to chapter 28, but I just want you to see, Satan was one of these cherubim. Like I said, we will look more and more detail. John sees the cherubim with six wings. Ezekiel sees them with four wings. We'll get into all that later on in our study. Some of you might have caught that. That's okay. We'll, we'll get into that later on in our study. I want to take the time we have left. We have 15 minutes left, and I think we can do it. I want to show you that these wheels, that you've ever noticed they keep talking about these wheels in Ezekiel chapter 1 and then also again in chapter 10? There are these wheels by the cherubim. And there's a wheel within a wheel. And the cherubim don't turn when they go anywhere. Whichever way they go, they are able to go either that way or this way. Well, how does that work? Well, they got faces on all sides, so they don't have to turn around. But only that, the Bible says the Spirit of the Lord was in the wheels. And if you remember the description of the cherubim, their legs are straight. They don't bend like ours. Their legs are locked straight. They have the wings. They have feet like hooves, like, 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 like a cow's hooves. And there are wheels there. And I, as I began to study on this, I came to realize I have never seen this before. The, I thought the first time we saw the wheels was here in Ezekiel chapter 1. But actually... God has told us about these wheels on the cherubim long ago, and we missed it. I can't wait to show it to you. Go to Exodus 25. Exodus 25. Look at verses 10 through 22. God's giving instructions to Moses about the building of the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? says, they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, two and a half cubits long, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. You shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it, and you shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. All right, stick with me here. God says, I want you to build this box, two and a half cubits long, cubit and a half wide, cubit and a half tall. I want you to cover it in gold, and I want you to put rings at its feet, one on each side, four of them. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain on the ring, in the rings of the ark, and they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. 
and you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. All right? Make one cherub on one end and the other cherub on the other end. And of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. And the cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. With their faces one to another, toward the mercy seat shall the faces uh, of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So now, when Moses is given the instructions about building this ark of the covenant, he's told, I want you to build this box, I'm going to tell you what to put in it later, and I want you to make it so long and so wide and so high, and I want you to take cherubim and put them on each end, but I want them to face each other, and I want their wings to stretch out toward each other in the middle, over the top of the box, which is going to be the mercy seat, and I want you to put rings at their feet. Now, we've seen these rings before. That's what they were to put the poles through, and that's how they were to carry it. They were to never to touch the ark. They were only allowed, the priests were allowed to carry the, by, by the poles, right? And for years, I thought that the rings were just simply so they could put the poles through so that they could carry it. Anybody want to guess what the rings are? They're the wheels of the cherubim. I got further proof. Don't build it on one verse or one passage. Never, never, never build your theology on one passage. Go to Exodus 37. Look at verses 1 through 9. Exodus 37. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length. A cubit and a half its breadth. By the way, those of you who don't, if you've never heard me talk on this, God even chooses who's supposed to make the box. Some of you say, well, I'm not a preacher. Good, because some of you have been gifted in craftsmanship and be able to do things with your hands. The Bible even says that God had chosen Bezalel and Aholiab to be the ones who made all this stuff. He, just like he's called preachers before they were born, he made every one of you for a reason and a purpose, and you just need to find what your gift is. Stop worrying about everybody else and just do what it is God's gifted you to do. And some of you love working with your hands and you're gifted in that area. Have fun. Use it however God gifts you and, and use your gift. And don't worry about whether or not you're, you're showing up for a church work day and all the other stuff everybody else is saying you ought to be at. Just do what he's called you to do. And Bezalel is the one who made it because God chose him to do it. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half was its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside, and he made a molding of gold around it. And he cast for it, there we see it again, four rings of gold for its four feet. Two rings on its one side and two rings on the other side. And he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. And he put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark. And he made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And he made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. And of one piece with the mercy seat, he made the cherubim on its two ends. And the cherubim spread out their wings above overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings and with their faces one to another toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. So here we see the actual construction of it. And again, we see the four rings are described, one at each foot. All right, go to 1 Kings chapter 6. First Kings chapter 6. Look at verses 14 through 28. 
Now you've got to stick with me here because this might get confusing to some of you because you're going to see cherubim being made again, but they're not the same cherubim that we just saw for the Ark of the Covenant. 1 Kings chapter 6, look at verses 14 through 28. It says, So Solomon built the house and finished it. By the way, anybody know what this house is that Solomon's building? It's the temple. Remember David said, here's the ark of God sitting in a tent while I'm living in a nice house. I'm going to build God a temple. God says, you're not the one I chose. I've chosen your son Solomon to do it. And so Solomon now we see is building the temple. So Solomon built the house and finished it. And he lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. And from the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling, he covered them on the inside with wood. And then he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. And he built 20 cubits of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls. And he built this within an inner sanctuary as the most holy place. The house that is the nave and the front of the inner sanctuary was 40 cubits long. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. And all was cedar. No stone was seen. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long and 20 cubits wide and 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar, and Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, and he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also, the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. In the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim, of olive wood, each ten cubits high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub, and five cubits the length of the other wing of the other cherub. It was ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. The other cherub also measured ten cubits, and both cherubim had the same measure and the same form. The height of one cherub was ten cubits, so was that of the other cherub. And he put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house, and the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that a wing of one touched one wall, and a wing of the other touched the, uh, the other cherub, touch, sorry, and the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall, and their wings touched each other in the middle of the house, and he overlaid the cherubim with gold. So now we see that when he builds this temple, by the way, can you imagine how much gold is being used to just cover the inside of this? It's just had to be unbelievable. But he builds these big cherubim, two of them, 10 cubits high. Each wing was five cubits, and one wing touched one wall, and the other wing touched the other tip of the other cherubim, and, and then the other wing touched the other wall, and they were amazing, and covered, built out of acacia wood, but covered in gold. You say, okay, Jim, I, I, don't see, I don't see any rings here. Okay. I showed you this, because now we're going to go back to a prior conversation between David and his son Solomon about building the temple. Go to first. Chronicles chapter 28. 1 Chronicles chapter 28. As you know, hopefully, David was told he couldn't build the temple. But David didn't pout when he was told no by God. He didn't change his membership. He actually said, then I will do what I can do. I'm wealthy. I have command of the, 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 the trees, you know, and the people that cut the trees and all the woodworkers and all this stuff. I will gather all the timber. I will gather all the gold needed. I will gather all the silver so that when it's time for Solomon to build, it's all ready to go. And then David also is involved in the plans. Look at chapter 28. Look at verses 11 through 19. 
Then David gave Solomon his son the plan of the vestibule of the temple. What we just saw Solomon build, David gave him the plan. And of its houses, its treasuries, its upper rooms, and its inner chambers, and of the room for the mercy seat, and the plan for all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord, all the surrounding chambers, the treasuries of the house of God, and the treasuries for dedicated gifts, for the divisions of the priests and the Levites, and all the work of the service of the house of the Lord, for all the vessels for service in the house of the Lord, the weight of gold for all the golden vessels for each service, the weight of silver for vessels for each service, the weight of golden lampstands in their lamps, the weight of gold for each lampstand in its lamps, the weight of silver for a lampstand and his lamps, according to the use of each lampstand in the service, the weight of gold for each table for the shewbread, and the silver for the silver tables, and pure gold for the forks, the basins, and the cups, and for the golden bowls, and the weight of each for the silver bowls, and the weight of each. Look at verse 18. For the altar of incense made of refined gold and its weight, also his plan for the golden chariot of the cherubim, that spread their wings and covered the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And this he made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord all the work to be done according to the plan. God had David give him all the gold and silver he needed for all those things. And also for the cherubim that Solomon was going to build in the temple, he gave him enough gold for the chariot of the cherubim. Is anybody with me yet? Anybody know what a chariot is? It's a conveyance with wheels. These cherubim have wheels. And the wheels have always been there. I just thought that the rings were for the carrying of the ark. And yes, they are. But that's how it moves around. You know how it moves around? The wheels. Yeah, man has to put a pole through them to get them to move. But we saw with the rings at the ark, at the base, at the feet of the cherubim, the wheels of the cherubim. And David even gave him the gold for the chariot of the cherubim. When Ezekiel sees these cherubim and wheels at their feet and wheels within the wheels, this isn't the first time we've seen the wheels, folks. It's all been there. Oh, we'll get into it next week, but do you remember what was above the cherubim? In our vision of Ezekiel? An expanse. And what was up above that? God. Remember, he was sitting on his throne above the cherubim? You remember in, in Revelation chapter 4, the cherubim were around the throne of God? Let me take you to two quick verses and we'll let you go home. Psalm 18. When I say quick verses, I mean quick passages. Psalm 18, look at verses 1 through 10. Psalm 18. Verses 1 through 10. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord, to my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked, the foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a 
cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering and his canopy around him. The thick clouds of dark, wa- dark with water out of the brightness before him. Hailstones and coals of fire broke through the clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens and the Most High uttered his voice. Hailstones and coals, coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. By the way, this is his second coming when he comes in judgment. And he's coming riding on a cherub. Go to Psalm 99. Look at verses 1 through 9. Psalm 99, verses 1 through 9, our last passage for tonight. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Footstool, holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. By the way, um, what's he writing in verse 1? Cherubim. When he comes riding on cherubim, you better make sure you're on his team because he comes in judgment. Ezekiel's at the river Kebar Canal there in exile in Babylon. The hand of the Lord was upon him. And all of a sudden he saw this vision. Stormy wind cloud coming from the north, flashing coming out of it. And then he saw these four living creatures and their wheels and God riding on them as he came in judgment. We'll get into more detail in our study about this in in, in next week. Thanks so much for coming. We'll see you then.